Welcome everyone, it's Tony Nash here, the CEO of Booktopia for Plugged and Unplanned and other series and got a great guest today, Brett Kelly. He's got his new book, Investment Wisdom, fourth in a series that he's been working on. Um, as he says in his book, um, it's kind of like at the same cadence as the 7-Up uh, series, uh, one of his in inspirations. So um, the, the new ones come out and I've had a little sneak peek. And it's it's really interesting because you can kind of just open it up and go onto one page and and be entertained and and dive into a bit of into a bit of content. So congratulations, Brett, and and welcome to Plug the Plan. Thanks for thanks for having me, Tony. I really appreciate it. No worries. And so you've um, you I saw um, before you've got your four books there. Do you want to just share with us um, what you've what you put together thus far? So Tony, here's the the big the big stack. Yeah. Uh, and I started these. It's an interesting story, actually. I started this in 1997. This book here, Collective Wisdom, uh -huh. and that's that's 34 prominent Australians on success in the future. And then seven years later, I wrote this book, Universal Wisdom, which is finding questions to life's ultimate uh, questions or answers to life's ultimate questions. And then seven years after that, I wrote this book called Business Owners Wisdom, which is 16 great business owners share their stories. And now this new one called Investment Wisdom, which is uh, nine of Australia's great investors sharing their lessons. And I guess, you know, the, the whole the whole series started in 1997, 30th of June, actually, 97. The boss said to me, hey, Brett, have you got a moment? And, you know, when you're the boss, I guess you get you get all the moments you need. And I said, sure. I went into the office and, and the boss at that time said, Brett, we've decided to terminate your employment. And um, I didn't say anything because my mum had said to me, you know, um, when you don't know what to say, the best thing you can do is say nothing. Um, and and so I didn't say anything and, and he kept speaking. I remember looking past his shoulder over, over this beautiful view out to the harbour um, down in Grosvenor Place, the, the, the investment bank was. And then he said after speaking for about what seemed like an hour, but it was about 10 minutes. He said, well, what do you think about that? And I remember thinking, you know, another thing my mum had said, mum had said, you know, if you're asked a stupid question, give a stupid answer. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not sure he really cares what I think about this. Otherwise, he would have asked me what I thought before he'd made his decision. Um, and so I said to him, you know, David, this is not the best start to the day. And... Um, and having played a lot of competitive sport, middle of eight boys, I, I grew up in a big family. I, I guess that new, more trendy word, resilience, um, I, I was just that sort of guy. So I got sent to outplacement at Morgan and Banks, exec outplacement for six weeks. And while I was sitting in there, I observ observed with all seriousness, a bunch of 50 year old exclusively men, virtually all white, um, given the topic of the day. and. Um, and these men had had their business cards taken away from them. They'd had their jobs taken away from them. And that, that had so identified, you know, been who their identity was that many of them were really struggling. And so as a young guy still living at home, I'd make, I was making good money. I'd been working previous to this job at Pricewaterhouse as an undergrad since I was 18. Um, I had some savings and I coined this idea that, I, you know, these guys had a great catastrophe and, and I really didn't. And later, I read a book that said, you know, if, if if you're having a bad day because you've broken a, your leg, just, just look for the guy who doesn't have a leg. 
and you know you'll know there's always someone worse off than you are and so i got home that night my dad asked me what had happened i told him and um and he gave me two books which really changed you know my life he gave me a book called how to win friends and influence people by dale carnegie the warren buffett who's become a real hero of mine um and 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 has been since i was about 16 said um you know, is the only certificate he hangs in his office. Is his Carnegie course? He says it. You know, it taught him to deal with people, and nothing else does really. And then um, the other book was called Think and Grow Rich, which is a book that talked about find people that have been successful and ask them what they did. And mm-hmm. so I thought that was such a good idea because I really I'd done everything everyone had told me to do, and then I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went back to our placement the next day. I got the little. Um, a who's who of Australia. It used to be a little red book. And I just chose 80 people that I thought would be amazing to meet. And today, because we've got podcasts and different things, it, it seems uh, not such a radical idea. But in 1997, and we're talking 24, 24 years ago now, this was just unheard of. And I got these guys um, and, and ladies' numbers, uh, addresses, and I wrote them a letter. I can still remember. I just wrote, Dear Mr. Hawk, uh, my name's Brett Kelly. I'm 22. I'm unemployed, but I'm keen to learn. I have 11 standard questions that I would really like to ask you. And if you would meet with me for an hour face-to-face and answer them, I'll put it in a book. I'll get it out to other young people so that they can learn like me because I'm not really sure what I want to do with my life. Kind of guard, Brett Kelly. Put a, put all these letters together. And I remember the PA lady at Morgan Bank sort of came to me and said, well, what's this all about? And, um, and I said, well, look, I've had this idea. You know, I'm going to write this book and meet these people and find out what I'm meant to do because what I've been doing, and they had these other job offers. They were like, oh, but you could, and I said, yeah, I just don't feel that that's really what I'm meant to be doing. And so, I, you know, I made five and a half thousand phone calls over about three and a half months, and I got 34 of those people to speak with me face to face. I had um, Gough Whitlam call me at home on a Sunday night. I had Paul Keating speak to me during a weekday. Um, these are people who couldn't be in my book because they had other book contracts, um, but were prepared to speak to me and answer the questions so long as I, I didn't go and publish them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just learned an enormous amount out of that exercise. One of the primary things that's never left me was these men in their 50s who somebody took their business card and they just lost their entire identity. And I said, you know, as I was talking to these guys, I was there for six weeks. I just listened to their stories, you know, the full catastrophe, big house, big mortgage, big living, you know, private school fees, cars, blah, blah, blah. And they were miserable. And it was very horrible. And so I basically made this observation that many people are very, very busy and and don't actually put themselves in time so that they get to 55 or whatever the age is. And then they sort of like, how did I get here? and they haven't done the things that they wanted to to do, they haven't really lived as the person that they wanted to be. So they're not necessarily proud of who they are or feel good about what they've done. And I just said, I don't want to end up like that. Um, And so uh, some after I wrote the book and it was a best-selling book and did a couple of thousand speaking engagements off the back of it, I went back into chartered accounting and where I built my career and built out Kelly Partners. But I said, Every seven years, I will stop no matter how busy I am, no matter what I'm doing, and I will write a book on what is is top of mind and, and 
concerns me at the time. And so after that first book, I read about 3,000 books and all I would do was sit and read, work and sit and read. A massive collection that I ultimately gave to my school library. They were all numbered and they couldn't believe it. And it was goodness knows how many thousands of dollars worth of books. You know, my estimate was over $200,000 I'd spent on books at least. And so uh, what I found was that there were these people who just operated at another level and they appeared to to do that very easily and they had enormous impact and I was intrigued as I have always been about people you know why why do these people um, have the impact they have and so that second book um, universal wisdom was really this discovery that there is universal principles that sort of apply all times all places all cultures and and one of those is you tend to get what you give. You know, the way you treat people tends to be the way they treat you. Um, and so I stumbled on Nelson Mandela, um, Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, who'd all followed this this peaceful, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, nonviolent resistance course of action. And there were these threads of these big ideas that, that had passed through um, people like Warren Buffett, um, uh, Pope John Paul II was a professor of philosophy before he was ever a pope. And so his thing was ideas and, you know, why? Because he was in Poland when the Nazis were there and then when the Russians were there. And so he had this clear view about good and evil. And he said, I see, I saw evil. Um, whereas a lot of people think they've seen inappropriate and appropriate. Um, whereas he really thought that he'd seen something a little stronger than that. So these people, I kind of wrote that book, got it out there, and, and then that cadence, as you mentioned, has become this this um, sort of personal way of stopping and reflecting. And so as I went into the business in 06 and started building Kelly Partners with chartered accountants, 15 officers, et cetera, where I decided just to look after people that look after, that run private businesses. And so I went in that year in 2012 and interviewed 16 leading business owners, you call it Dinigans, Tom Waterhouse, um, Nick Cironi, all sorts of good, amazing people and ask them their stories. And I guess, you know, long and the short of that, and, and then obviously with this business, is just this idea that in conversations like this, in meeting people, um, you can learn. And I think they add, you know, you, you, I've had this saying that you end up the average of the seven people that you spend the most time with. And I knew as a young guy at 22, I, I didn't, I wasn't Kerry Packer's son or whatever. I didn't have access to people that I thought operated at a level at which I wanted to operate, you know, that had the standards and the drive and the, and the smarts, I guess, that, that I, that I wanted to play it. And so I basically, um, through, you know, I read a guy mentioned, you know, get some dead mentors. And, you know, YouTube now makes that really easy. So I had all these dead mentors. My, all the people in my second book other than Warren Buffett are all dead, right? Um, but they're all on YouTube and you can learn from them. Um, and so that's, that, that's been the journey. And so now the two, I just looked at them yesterday, actually, Tony. Somebody mentioned, you know, you should put them in a box and, and, and get them out as a, as a set. And interestingly, what I've come to see is that this, you know, this set's real. this is really personal the first two books are really about personal development. The second two are more so about business. And I guess that's the way I've looked at life is that you tend to bring to your business your personal values and, and ideas. So that's, you know, there's about 1,400 pages there of attempt when, to learn. So, so that's what it is. 
when you did the second one, because you interviewed the others, it was very obviously um, you could navigate and direct the conversation. Uh, perhaps the way you, you probably had, the, as you said, these eleven questions, and you probably stuck to them. And it was a, it was your first foray into into publishing, and to, and you were, you know, you were going above and beyond your age. So, but when you went to the second one, what was your um, strategy to extract? You obviously couldn't ask those people questions. What did you do? Go and try and find out um, essential truths about what their beliefs were. What? Yeah. So that's that's what happened. So Tony. I'm sitting there. I'm reading all these books, and I was—I've got this. I wish I could show it to you. I might, I might. I'll see if I can take it off the wall, right? I'll show it to you in my study here. I've got this painting that my wife bought me, and it's called the Bookworm. And there's this guy, and he's just—I don't know if you can see that. Yep, I can. And he's just surrounded by books, right? And one of my heroes is Charlie Munger, and he says that his kids said that he was—he was, he was a, um, a book on legs, and. Um, and so I had this reading chair in this reading room where I basically had this whole library of books and I sat on my reading chair and I would just sit with piles of books reading and underlining and highlighting. And what, what I found was that um, this guy would mention that guy who'd mentioned this guy and they sort of came down into this group of people who have been so influential over time and, and these big ideas. And so it was the big idea that led to some of the people like this guy would mention this thing and I would go off and track through bibliographies. And and so when I landed on some of these people, I found that I, I would buy everything I could buy, multiple biographies, et cetera, and read on that person. And, and it, it was then the process of, in the book, going and saying, right, let's research now. We had the internet at that point. So I've got all the books and I'm reading all the books, all the articles, all the YouTube, whatever I can find, and, and videos and basically I felt like I could meet the people, um, you know, in the time and place I was based on all of the things that they'd left. And they did live, live in a different world. But I think one of the things that we all do is we all imagine our time and place to be somehow radically different to some other time and place where as the, the, the sort of DNA genome hasn't changed and, and the way humans, I believe, come to their place hasn't changed much. You know, they have similar hopes. They have similar fears, similar aspirations. Their emotional drivers are very, very, very similar. And the more you read on these people, the more you see that. Um, and, yeah, sure, you know, maybe if, if, if you're a, uh, you know, an oppressed person in this time, they're pointing guns at you, and at that time they're pointing bows and arrows at you. But human nature doesn't seem to have changed much ever. And so I'm reading on these people and, and frankly, by the time you've immersed yourself in the amount of material that exists on them, um, it, it's literally like you're sitting there having a conversation with them. And so it is to me one of the great privileges of our time and certainly with the level of, of um, material wealth that, that any, any person enjoys in Australia given our public libraries and access to the internet and all the rest of it, you can just access a stupid amount of information on, on, on these types of people. So I'm sitting there with, you know, reading on Mandela and, and I could look at the maps, I could look at the pictures, I could see. And, um, yeah, look, at, at, to me, it's a great um, exercise in trying to, to acknowledge that, um, it, you know, today most people find it difficult to learn from someone 10 years older than them that's alive. 
um, uh, you know, we're pretty ageist. We, you know, there's a lot of talk about us being sexist and being being racist and homophobic. But in fact, I actually think the great affliction of our time is ageism, lack of appreciation of not only what older people might have learned, but what what older dead people can probably teach us as well. So. So that was the journey. I just sort of landed there by accident. I, I was just literally a young guy trying to work out how the hell does all this work and, and what would your life look like over a long period of time if you lived a little bit differently. So you, you've, you've got your the next seven-year project out of the way, Investment Wisdom, and I never tell too much about the book because I, I don't want to give too much away. I want people to buy the book, of course. I mean, that's why I'm here and that's why you're here. But... Um, there's um, the process of selecting the nine people. Was that was that easy or difficult? Because they're not household names. Uh, they're they're obviously very successful. Because I, I read the the overview of each one. Um, pro, you, they're probably famous in your industry. You're you're the CEO of a listed company that uh, is involved in investing and and chartered accounting and finance. So they're they're, got, they're people that you probably know very well, um, but um, did you have a big list? And did some? Did you do many interviews? And if some of them never made the nine um, because it, they just were too boring, or they or they they were too controversial, or there wasn't enough. Like, ha, ha, tell us about yeah, your. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, Tony, over the course of what what my typical process is, I come up with like a a list of heroes, if you like, people who. Uh, have achieved heroically in their space. And often there's there can be things about all sorts of people that are objectionable, um, but typically in terms of achieving their goal in their specific area, they've, they've done very well at, at least doing that. Um, I then, once I've come up with that list, I write a letter with a copy of a previous book and say, hey, I'd really like to put you in the book. Some people I can't get to be to interview. It, it's just difficult they either timetable or they're difficult or their schedules or whatever and then some people are, are easy to get there are a number of people who i interviewed for the book that were happy for me to interview them because they were happy to sit with me and teach me and and whatnot but didn't want that published because they're very very private people mm-hmm. um and that's disappointing because some of that content is just just absolutely mind-blowing um and one of i guess one of the outcomes of the project over time tony is that if I send this stack of four books to almost anyone, they will make an hour to sit and talk to me. And that is just an unbelievable um, uh, gift in and of itself because I get to meet incredible people that, and I always believe that, you know, some of those good attributes can rub off, you know, you can learn something. So so that that's the first bit. I write to them, ring them, phone them, fiddle around, trying to get everyone's schedules to work. And then... Um, Look, I, I, I must say, I've never actually done an interview where I've sat with somebody and been bored. Basically, you know, people have inherently interesting stories. I ask a lot of questions. I do ask very direct questions. The book is full of very direct questions. There's, you know, um, Joe Shineski in there, you know, his family's background, survive, Holocaust survives the parents, et cetera, et cetera. These are incredible people with incredible stories. Um and no, they're not all household names, um, not even in our industry, um, uh, but uh, but highly regarded. Um, often the incredibly successfully, successful people don't have an enormous public profile. They don't seek one. They, they often end up with one as a result of 
the exceptional work they do, which I think is the right way to, to build a profile. Um, and so, you know, I thought your intro was great. You know, when I did my first, I had a gentleman come up to me and he bought the book and I was doing a, a presentation somewhere and he said to me, Brett, you know, uh, it was an older gent and he said, look, I don't want to be rude, Brett, but it's a very good toilet book. And I sort of looked at him and I said, oh, oh yes. He said, well, well, I can sit there and just, you know, I can just read a chapter at a time. <laughs> so I had this great vision. Um, but, you know, to your intro, it, it's a type of book that you can dip in into and out of. It's not a heavy slog. You can, you know, you'll see here I've always got these little stickers on on my books that help me sort of read and come back to things. Um, uh, it's, it's a nice book to just read a part of a chapter and the other thing which is quite interesting at the moment is with the changes in the world in terms of investment and whatnot is to is to say is to look through and sort of go okay well based on what's happening at the moment these interviews were done pre-crisis how how does the thinking of the people really you know resonate um with the world that we're living in right now and is there and has there been any like, have you had a chance to include any of COVID or any of pandemic, or is it is it just as you said before, universal through peaks and troughs? Yeah, that's right. So I haven't asked in in the book about COVID, but what's quite interesting is these are uh, are seasoned invest investment professionals that have seen multiple. Uh, cataclysms, if you like, oil crises and uh, dot-com busts and Asian crises, or 87 crash. You know, Alex Wiselitz, who's in the book, one of the most interesting, you know, parts of the entire exercise was sitting with him when he said, look, I was a young guy, Brett, working on a dealing desk in, in New York for Robert Holmes Accord, and it was me that had to phone him in Perth in the middle of the night and tell him the market was crashing, and I was on a phone and I was telling him the numbers as the crash on Black Tuesday was happening. Just that that section of this book is is utterly riveting, you know, to think, he's a young guy. I think at the time he might have only been 23 or 24. He'd lucked in. He was a team of um, four or five people that Holmes Accord had working out of New York. He was doing deals all over the world. These guys were acting on his account there. And he said, you know, I'm on the phone and, and I've got Robert on one other phone and he I'm telling him what's going on. He's on his other phone other phones doing the things we're doing, dragging people to his house in the middle of the night um, to respond. You know, the thing about Alex now is 20, uh, he's 60, I think 62, 63. And yet, you know, to me, I, I was in 1987, October 87, I was in year seven. I was not in a position to to be working on a trading floor in New York, to, to be working for Robert Holmes at court. But I sat there and I said to him, so what was that like? What did a feel like? How did you react? What was Robert Holmes a court like? One of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time. How did he react under this pressure? You know, what was, what did that feel like? And, and look, you know, if you can't be there yourself, to be able to sit with somebody who was, is about as good as it gets. And so, you know, I've, I've used the term across the books of uh, wisdom. And Tony, that's, you know, a term not typically used. And I, I could improve the sales of the book, no doubt. If I went to Booktopia as I was this afternoon, I'd Google a little bit more to see what searched a little bit better. But I've resisted over time because fundamentally, I believe that 
you know, in life you should grow in wisdom, which is, you know, the, the common uh, understanding of the, the word is deep understanding. And so, you know, I guess as a very young guy, I just made this observation that, you know, I, I, I was watching these guys with the full drama and I just thought that they were, they had lived unconsciously. And I said, you know, I want to, I want to live consciously and I want to seek deep understanding. And as a result, you, you end up with a richer life, um, which isn't a bad thing. And, um, and you get to meet these incredible people. So when, when you think about all the, I mean, the people that you meet, and I'm not talking now, I mean, you're meeting people all the time through your business, you're consulting for your clients, um, your teams are consulting for clients. What's one of your favorite questions to ask someone to kind of open up the can of worms or to kind of set you on a trajectory of a conversation? Do you have one or is there? Yeah, I call them power questions, Tony. Um, there's this, this idea. So, so remember when you, you know, I'm a chartered accountant. I have a master's degree in tax and I, and I work daily advising private business owners. But there really is no one in the country that, that has started a startup business from scratch in a small room and grown it to be the 24th largest business in our industry. There's 13,000 firms. I've been doing this for 27 years while writing my books in, in my spare time. And, and you know, when a, a client or new prospect sitting in front of me, they're, they're really talking to a guy that's not only got a number of degrees and some professional experience, but it's, you know, there's 13, 14, 12, 1300 pages of, of effort here. My first book, there were 800,000 um, words, you know, that we cull down. So it is some life experience, I guess, to bring to the table. And one of the things I've come up with is these power questions. Now, I believe that in building, in understanding what drives people in business, you need to understand what drives the person because people come to the business as a person. They don't come to the business as a business. Like, you know, the business reflects the person. And so I'll always ask a business owner, you know, what do you live for? And then I'll add a very long pause and see what I can pull out because often the business owner's been busy and, and in their mind they're like, well, there's this stated values of really who I want to be when I grow up and there's the realized values, which is who I'm being right now. And the tension is between those two things. And what I see, you know, the big value that I add to a lot of these types of men and women is to say, well, hang on, when you when you were young, you said you wanted to grow up to be like that. And you're sort of here, which is great. So how do we close that gap? You know, is, is who you want to be really at odds with your business? And the answer is no. They, they have just not been as conscious of that because they've been busy on the business. And so if you, you know, there's that great, um, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's this great um, story and it was in one of the, my, you know, a guy who changed my life actually, I've got it here. There's these two guys, um, 1001 Ways to Market Your Book. So this is a guy called John Kremer. It's a 26th edition. Everyone I've met in publishing in Australia, I've almost met no one who's ever read that book, which is interesting. That was my Bible. And there's this other guy, Mark Victor Hansen, who did Chicken Soup for His Soul. And I found this the other day, the Mega Book University. And it's 25 hours of, of, of DVDs, on, of CDs on how to market your book, right? It came out of the US, sold 500 million books. But what was interesting um, about these guys was, was to say that, you know, in Chicken Soup for the Soul, the original book, he tells this great story where, where the, the dad sees the kid and 
um, the kid's doing a, a puzzle and the dad says, look, do this, mate. You, you know, you've got, to, you've got to put the world together and come back in a few hours because I'm busy. So the kid goes off and on the back of the, on the, on the, back of the box, there was a picture of the people and, it, and I'm no good at telling the story, but essentially the, the moral of the story was that he, the kid worked out that there were people on the back and the world on the front. If you just put the people together, it made the world better. And so in business and life, you know, if you can get the owners better, you know, if you can get the person, what do you live for? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, I live to, to have a successful business and a business that makes an impact and changes people's lives and makes the community better, great. And at the same time, are you as fit as you need to be physically and mentally to bring your best self to work? Are you as disciplined as you could be in terms of making your your stated values, which is to spend time with your family and time on, on yourself and with your kids, are you doing that? Look at your diary for the last six weeks and let's have a bit of a look. Oh, shit. Are you spending your money on what is, you know, really reflects your values? And where do you want to see this business, you know, over 30 years, which means, you know, how, how are you going to reconcile yourself to that? And so it's those types of questions that I guess I've, I've specialised in, which, you know, what do you live for? If this thing becomes everything it could be, what does it look like? And what, what is your role during that journey? Not over three minutes, but as Warren Buffett taught me, you know, over 20 years or more. If you look at a decision in the light of 20 years, it, it often changes your perspective. So that's, you know, I guess I don't think you can go through the process of um, writing these books and meeting these people. And remember, these people are challenging people. You know, Tony, many of these guys give me a hard time, a really hard time over time, right? Um, I remember sitting, actually, first book with Malcolm Fraser, and um, I'd met Malcolm on the street in Melbourne and just harassed him into letting me interview him the next day. And, and he, I think he was a lawyer by training. You know, I couldn't ask him a question without him restating, rephrasing, and changing the question, right? It was just a, it was just a punch up. It was a great interview, actually. It's quite interesting. But it was who he was. And I was a very young guy, right? Um, but later, a current affair did a story on the book and went back to him and he gave this fantastic interview, hugely complimentary about how well the book went and how good the interview was. And I walked out thinking, oh, shit, I've really embarrassed myself. I've asked all the wrong questions. Um, I really I really need to you know, work out what I'm doing. Um, and so I guess that's that's the journey. That's the, you know, the, the impact it can make. And and for people listening, you know, to me, you can never meet enough people and 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 learn from their experience because we all do while we come i think with very similar dna and, and ideas and values i do think we all experience the world you know in our own way and people are unique and interesting mm. so given given that you've kind of emulated the seven up series um in terms of you come back to this every seven years is it a bit like a um, an orbit of the sun at one of the very outer planets, where it takes years and years to come around? So when you're when you're not writing the book and you've just you've just you know finished the last one, so now the book has come more into your into your life. Do, do you find then, as you know, after the launch and after it gets selling, does it become a little bit in the background and then you move back into your normal kind of way of life or is it constant now that you've got four or okay you've got four but you had three is it constantly interweaving itself within your within your uh, the fabric of the way that you go about things or do, are the books do they just kind of drift away for a little while and then they come back again yeah it's like i think it's like a great romance tony you know with books i i'm somebody who utterly loves books 
So I love bookshops, I love books, I love libraries. I just love them. I love to smell them, touch them, read them, write on them, the whole lot. So with with my books, what what tends to happen, and, and I think one of the things that, that I say to people, when you send somebody a book, in our culture, it is anathema to burn a book. It is anathema to throw a book out. So they get passed on. They, you know, I've worked, I've walked in to pitch for a client, and my book's been on their bookshelf, and they didn't even know that that was my book until they go, oh, that, it, yeah. So they have this life of their own that does keep, you know, crisscrossing into yours, and really they're the gift that keeps on giving because every time you read, you know, I love the um, Britannica great books of Western culture, um, five hundred books and collated and. These books, when you read them, they they speak to you at every stage of your life, no matter you know where where you are. And so, what I found with the books is they sort of go out and they 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 enlarge my life. They take me into places. You know, I launched my first book at the National Press Club. I spoke there with Natasha Stotos Boyer. I launched launched the second one, three hundred thousand person television audience um, at the Press Club with Malcolm Turnbull. I I would never, you know, they gave me a, a set of, I was 28, they gave me a set of um, uh, National Press Club uh, cufflinks that I've still got. And a friend of mine who was just elected to Parliament said, oh, yes, I went to this thing at the Press Club the other day. I said, yeah, mate, I've got the cufflinks. And he couldn't believe it, right? There's all this life journey and story and, and whatnot. So they do sort of, it's interesting how they go out of immediate focus. I'll promote the book over the next month. We've got a lot of good PR and reception for the book. I'll do the launch a bit later in the year when I can get some people together. I'll, I'll keep that for trying to get some people together and have a bit of a party. Um, and and then, uh, you know, a guy rang up the other day, bought 500 books, and I sent him 500 books the other day. So they'll just go out into the world. There's 10,000 copies, you know, sort of going around of, of this book. Um, and then we'll see where it takes us. And, you know, what's quite interesting, which I think I, I'm quite likely to do, is is there are a number of heroes in the investment space, which is something I'm very interested in globally, who I've, I've just always wanted to meet or speak to or whatnot. And so that, you know, it's likely as a sort of part two of this particular book that I'll write to a number of those people and try and get them. I've got my podcast, Be Better Off Show, um, by Kelly Partners, and, and I'll seek to get – I'm getting a whole bunch of the guys from this book on there, and I'll seek to get a bunch of the guys probably on that. But it's funny, you 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 know, you your life keeps happening. I've got a 15 year old and a 12 year old and an eight year old, um, and a fantastic number one supporter in my wife Rebecca, um, and so that all sort of keeps happening. Um, but I must say, this project does really force me to think about, you know, I'm 45 now. Where am I up to? Where are the kids up to? And you can feel, and I'm sure you know this, you can feel your priorities change, um, and what's important to you is influenced by, you know, by your experience. Mm. I enjoy the process. So just on that then, because you, um, you did trigger something for me. With my public speaking that I do, I always start off with one of the, my, my goal, one of my golden nuggets is the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. And that's basically the, the formula, the format, the, the backbone of your book. Um, so just if I was to, you know, hit the ball back over the net to you on that one so what you know you know what makes you get up and get going what are the 
you, you just talked about your family, but what are some of the things in your own life that you've been, I mean, to frame it up so if people don't realize, you're the CEO of an of a ASX-listed company. You've been tremendously successful. I would say probably at, at a younger age than most would have accomplished what you've accomplished. So you've, you've done, um, you've, you've ticked a lot of boxes, I guess, for yourself along the way. You, know, you sound very focused, but you sound very um, um, kind of open to to whatever information you can you can get, and that um, you're not you're not sitting there and going, I know everything, um, I know enough, and and I'm going to sit on that, which is probably like the 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 50 year olds that were in that room with you at Morgan and Banks, who who had this great great awakening. So. You know what drives you? What what motivates you? What is what makes you tick? Because I guess some of that will come through in your book and the way yeah. you yourself in business. Yeah. So I, when we had Thomas, our our eldest, I never forget. You know, Beck took him to to the first sort of feeding class, and she came back and she said, you know, Tom's just like awake. You know, he was just awake, and I I remember my mum describing me as you know quite a handful, except for school, preschool at four. Uh, and, and I'm sure it was because she needed a rest. I did two, two or three years of preschool, proper school preschool. Um, and look, I think to be born with some genetics that give you a lot of energy is very, very helpful. Um, but for me, uh, you know, the life of the mind, I, I'm just intensely curious. And, and and I also believe, you know, if somebody said to me, you know, what do you live for? I worked out through my journey that I want to grow in understanding. I want to I want to to consider that as I get older, I can become wiser, which means I can make better choices that are more aligned to what I believe are good values. I I fundamentally am driven by what we've called at Kelly Partners, uh, making people better off. You know, Nike have just do it, we have better off. And what that means is that I've, I just fundamentally believe that everyone has gifts and talents and those gifts and talents are meant to be used to make other people better off. You know, I was 22, I was really, you know, it's easy to gloss over, but having lost my job, I was very much asking questions going, okay, I come first in everything always type of thing, right? And, and I heard this wonderful old speaker Zig Ziglar and he said you know if you help enough people get what they want you'll get what you want right and I didn't know what I wanted but I took that learning um, and said okay well if 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 I'm a chartered accountant and my focus could be on the client and really making that client better off given the amount of energy and smarts that I have then I reckon over time that'll go okay and so I sat down when we started the business, built out the systems and the processes that are completely unique, don't exist anywhere else, that have a unique insight into how a person can align themselves with their business and drive them to, to their goals. And that motivates me tremendously. You know, it, it doesn't, I'm much more motivated by, because I've just basically tied all my goals to tying, to helping other people achieve their goals. You know, the thing I'm most proud about in our business, we've got 42 partners, 230 people. But I've made 40, 40 of those partners partners. You know, I've found them as younger guys and girls and said to them, you know, I call it being a can as, as opposed to being a cannot, you know, saying that, you know, Tony, if you're prepared to do this, this and this, 
you can do this goal of yours and and I seem to have the type of personality and give people that type of confidence because I've I've always felt that I could do the things that that I set my mind to and that I'm certain that came from my dad just being a hundred percent supporter. I know a lot of people haven't had that type of supporter, but I did. And so my sort of mindset is to be that person for the other person, to talk to them about the possibilities that exist for them. Um, because often, you know, I, I'm sitting outside their situation. I can see their company. I can see where they are. They're in there. And say, mate, you're here. You know, I remember meeting one of my best clients and I said, you know, I've done this analysis of your company versus listed peers. You know, this is a billion-dollar company. And he just scoffed. He said, no, no, we're, you know, we're only making $10 million profit. How's this a billion-dollar company? And I said, well, this is, you know, I was probably 29 at the time. This was some time ago. It's still a client, actually. And I said, you know, mate, here are the listed comparables. I'd gone to Bloomberg. I've got listed comparables globally. Uh, we're accountants. And said, mate, these are the listed comps globally. This is how you're performing. This is the, you know, this is... This is the backstory. This is the front story. That's how an investment banker would look at it, mate. That's where you are. So you need to move your brain from running a million-dollar company to running a billion-dollar company and right now deal with this gap so you have the talent pipeline, the structure pipeline, the governance pipeline to actually get you there because that's where you're going. You, you know, that you already let the rocket go, mate, and either it's going to do this or it's going to keep doing this. Now, that gives me enormous joy there's that saying that in giving you know it's the world it's life's most selfish act because you know in this book and just to mention actually you know 100 percent of the proceeds from this sale of this book so every dollar we receive from the sale of this book is going to our foundation that foundation the last three years i've been sending year 11 kids to israel to study for a week um they uh, we put a program together where they see some of the world's leading companies uh, and are taught how technology can be used to build businesses that can have a positive social impact. And so that's an example of where, um, you know, I've just found that in giving, um, I've, I've never ended up worse off. I've ended up much better off. And so um, what's interesting is that's the philosophy that we're brought to the business and that really drives me is that, you know, many people couldn't get a couple of hours face-to-face with some of these investors. Some of them are managing $20 billion plus. Uh, they're really serious guys, amazing people, incredibly busy and focused on what they're doing. But I can get that. And so I've, I've started to understand one of the people in my first book said to me, you know, this book's a real gift bet. You, you wrote my story and I can give that to my family. I've never had the time to do that. And so I basically think, you know, I can go and get this information and share it with people. Um, uh, I'm giving 100% of the money away because uh, that's not the reason I did it. I get I get the learning and, you know, to to, um, to quote another, and I'm trying to think of who the old American speaker was, when I'd lost this job, Tony, I'm sitting at home and I bought the entire Simon & Schuster self-help tape catalogue. There were tapes in those days. It was 2,000 tapes. I put them in a, book, in, a, in a bookshelf and I listened to every single one of them, Man's Search for Meaning, um, and etc etc and um but i remember this saying that learning leads to earning and so i knew that i was broke as a joke but i um thought that if i learned a bit more about how to work with people and and just you know how to make a positive difference to people you probably do okay over time and i look at your business and, and i don't think it's any difference you know you've got a great enough focused on the customer and you guys are doing okay
Mm, yeah, thanks. So when when you um, when your when your business needs to attract customers, are you is Kelly Partners now because of having been going for so long, so many partners, so many people? Does does the business come to you now? Do you not? Do you have to do any marketing at all, or you've you've just got that? And do you have to say no to customers because of the the type of um, the type of approach that you take to to taking care of a client? How's that? And and what about in this in this environment we're talking at the moment, just coming out of the end of the first wave of the pandemic? There could be a second wave. Uh, it's the it's the it's June when we're not, not everyone's going to be listening at this straight away. So whoever's listening, it's June. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. And if anyone's listening, you, you'll be the wiser because you're, you're listening with much more hindsight. But are you having to deal with your clients right now in a very different way? Because they're some of them are dealing with some very um, um, tactical, catastrophic scenarios that they've never they never planned for. Yeah, so that, absolutely, Tony. So you know, somewhere between five and seven of our seven percent of our clients have been have, have applied for JobKeeper, which means that they've had a thirty percent impact in their business. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we've got this great cross section of clients, about eight thousand private businesses in New South Wales. So it's a good number. There's a there's a bit of a study as to what's really going on in the economy. Um, so we've been working, to be fair, much harder than ever to be close to the client and helping the client to understand what the go forward is you know, what their buffers are, when to throw in the towel, if that makes sense, or at least hibernate properly um, and, and make those tactical decisions. But also, you know, I had the view that you shouldn't back, you shouldn't bet against the whole world. And because of the nature of the pandemic, basically the whole world is trying to solve the problem. And they're an incredible, incre- incredibly smart people all over the world trying to work out what do we do, how do we do it, when do we do it, and so I've, I've been saying to our clients, okay, get ready for the world post-COVID. Say, how do you innovate beyond the curve? Because I think we are talking pre the call. I believe the curve's been brought back this way. And so where people are planning to change one day, they need to change right now and say, okay, well, how does a customer want to be served today? How do they want to be served tomorrow? What is the offer that really appeals to the customer tomorrow? So we've, we've been, interestingly enough, attracting a lot of new clients and during the pandemic and that's been because of the amount of complexity in the government programs for a start and secondly the amount of complexity that's been brought to even a, a, a what an owner would normally think is a normal business not complex the environment's complex so people are asking a lot more questions about their business frankly our our industry is not known for its energy um, innovation um, and get up and go that was me being gentle um, and so to outperform what I think is often quite average or worse um, in our industry isn't difficult. As a result, we've, we've, you know, we've grown a 35% cumulative average growth rate uh, for 14 years and um, the industry is growing at about 3.5%. So it's 10 times the industry. And so how do you do that? Half through organic, half through acquisition. You've got to keep your existing customers very happy. They will do a lot of the marketing for you in terms of bringing the next people, but we do market. So other accounting firms don't market. And so we sort of see that as a huge opportunity where um, we'll do radio, we'll do some TV, we'll do direct mail, whatever, because um, in our industry, it's sort of seen below, it's seen as below people to, to advertise or market. 
it's normally because my view is that um, when you don't understand something, it, it, it's easy to dismiss it. And you sort of comment before that that I strike it was open to things. I absolutely, you know, if I looked at Booktopia today and I thought it had a way to market that I could apply to my industry, I would do it. I would test it and I would be completely open to being completely wrong. But I'm never so locked into something that I feel that I'd be wrong. I, I'm subject to new information, new and better information. And so um, that's not the mindset, you know, of our industry generally. And so to anyone listening, you know, whatever industry you're in, try and work out what you think the average, you know, response or mindset of your industry is, whether that's to sales, to marketing, to finance, to whatever. However they do whatever they do, try and invert that. That's sort of Charlie Munger. Try and invert that and say, well, you know, when I started, everyone would let the work, the client, the account would do the work and then they would get paid one day. And the client would never know what the fee was and the account would never know when they'd get paid. So I pioneered fixed fees where I said, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you exactly what it's going to cost and I'll tell you exactly when you're going to pay. You're going to pay me 50% up front and 50% on completion, but you're going to have 100% certainty around the price. If I tell you it's 10 bucks and it costs me 12, well, I should have quoted better. But I will never um, tell you between 10 and 15,000 or between 100 and 150,000 and then you hear 100, I hear 150, and then what most accounts do, send a bill for 180. So I worked out that there were a few things that that happened in our industry that, that annoyed clients. So the first one is uh, a backward-looking accountant, so not forward-looking proactive advice that treated the business as a business. Um, clients want advice. Uh, I also knew that they wanted certainty around price, that they, they just wanted certainty. They didn't care whether you were cheap or expensive. They just wanted to know, just tell me the price so I can run my business and get on with my life and don't just keep sending me random bills. So we pioneered fixed fees. And then I knew that um, the clients highly valued access to the, the partner, the senior people in the business, but could never get to the partner they get fobbed off or whatever. So I always joke that service in our industry is a return phone call ever, uh, which is funny. So not funny for the client. So I said, right, we'll give you 24-6 access by text, by phone, by whatever you like, and we'll absolutely respond same day. To me, that's just old-fashioned service, no big deal. Um, and then finally, we had this aspiration to genuinely change people's lives and make them better off, which means that we designed a 65-point flight plan checklist that shows you, you know, exactly what your progress is and what you have to do to get there. But that, to me, is the way I think people should be thinking about their business, is to say, what does everyone else do? And then, you know, uh, if you think about the customer purchase criteria, this is what everyone else is doing. You should be able to put a gap between, you know, a significant gap straight blue oceans type strategy between what the industry's offering and what you're offering. And to be fair, that's actually much more interesting um, because I, I actually want to have a client that's happy that wants to, you know, I, I would say to a client, I still do, they will say to me, oh, look, you know, I can't change accountants because my accountant's my mate. I said, that's great. I've just got one question for you. Is he a great accountant? They say, oh, I'm not sure about that, but he's my mate. I said, how about this? I don't want to be your mate. I just want to be a great accountant. You keep him as your mate, and I'll be a great accountant. But let me tell you, if I'm your great accountant, we'll end up mates. But I don't want false mateship because I don't think this guy's doing a great job. So you you need to really improve the standard of your mates. And they'll do exactly what you're doing at the moment, Tony. They just laugh their heads off, right? They just go, yeah, yeah, okay, right. Do you want me to explain what a great accountant is? Yeah, mate, we get forward-looking advice, fixed fees, no surprises, 
you know, we're going to be completely accessible to you. My clients still know they text me, they get a text back, like virtually instantly. Um, and we're going to do these things using this system to make a radical difference, not just fuck around. Um, so that's the thing that I've got passion for. And, you know, when I'm talking to anyone in business or if they're just thinking about their lives, you know, there's no point making an incremental improvement in your fitness, right? I've got this page here. This is my fire up 90 challenge, right? So faced with the crisis, I basically designed myself a, a challenge. I said, look, I reckon I'm going to have to work from home for 13 weeks. So I put a 13-week challenge together and said across healthy, wealthy, wise, and fun, I will do these things every day. So two workouts a day, blah, 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 blah. And then I shared that with the clients, made a, made a, a private group. We've got about 250 people in it, did a growth program every Friday morning, an hour of extra tutoring for our clients on whatever they want to talk about every Friday morning um, from 8.30 till 9.30. But the, again, that was a way of saying, okay, the shit has hit the fan for a lot of people. They're worried that they need advice but, but are not looking to in, increase their expenses. I'm here anyway. So if you want to get on Zoom with me, I'll spend an hour with, you know, we've got 499 people in that group. Um, I checked the other day, I was looking for the 500, and um, and and we've just tried to add value. Now, I think if you take that approach um, of non-incremental improvement, you know, how do we do this radically better? Um, then I, then to me, you know, my heroes are your Bezos's and your Jobs and your Buffett's, et cetera, around really great world-class standards. Um, that's inspiring. You know, the alternative is, is not great. And I guess, you know, to finish a, a long answer to a short question, Tony, um, I love Jim Rohn. He's an old American speaker and he, he has this great saying. He says, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people are younger listening to this. He says, you know, don't ask that life is easier. Ask that you get better. Um, I've always had a challenging mindset. And so that sort of approach to say, well, we're by f nowhere near perfect. I don't even consider that I've, you know, my standard's Apple, right? Um, so I always say to our marketing team, well, how are we going versus Apple? One out of 10, we can't get complacent, right? Um, Berkshire Hathaway, how are we going financially versus Berkshire Hathaway? They're my, you know, my people heroes, Disney, my process heroes, McDonald's and, um, and Walmart. Uh, my financial hero is um, Buffett and Berkshire. And my client hero uh, is, is really um, Apple and Ritz-Carlton. I said, right, how are we going against those guys? They're the company I want to keep. And it's always somewhere near that, then let's not get complacent. I think ultimately having those types of standards, that's what I've learned from these people, right? Whether, whether you know, I've got people in here who are saints and sinners and God knows what in between, but none of them had low standards around trying to live their best life. I think you can tell everyone that we're in the middle we're midstream in a conversation, but we've actually come to the end of our time and, and we've, we've covered so many things, Brett, but I think uh, for anyone that's listening, like Investment Wisdom, uh, he's got other books as well, which you should uh, try and seek out. And and also, if you're in business, Kelly Partners, I mean, you you have to put them on your list of at least give them a call and have a conversation because maybe, um, maybe you're ready to upgrade. So, Brett. Thank you so much for your time. It's been so entertaining and uh, we could go on for hours, no yeah. doubt. Um, my questions are endless. So um, I look forward to catching up with you again soon and congrats and good luck with the book. Thanks so much, Tony. I really appreciate it. As I like to say, have a great day.
Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.